This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. To learn more about our research and to download other podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. I thought I'd begin at the end, or the approach to the end of Eliot's poetic career, with four quartets when he had was a fully signed up Anglo-Catholic, with the first part of the first quartet, Burnt Norton. This is a meditation on time and memory and what to do with one's memories. And the initial lines go round in circles, really, very conscious of themselves as language until they arrive at that visionary moment in the Rose Garden. Time, present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage which we did not take, towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. But to what purpose, disturbing the dust in a bowl of leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them, round the corner, through the first goat gate, into our first world. Shall we follow the deception of the thrush? Into our first world, there they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves in the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye-beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we move, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose. Quietly, quietly, the surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been 
and what has been point to one end which is always present. And I want to move on now to the last quartet, to a passage from Little Gidding, one of my favourite passages, not only, I think, in Ian Eliot, but in all 20th century poetry and beyond, maybe. I'll read lines from, this, the, the lines are from part two of Little Gidding in imitation of Dante's Terzarima form. Eliot himself said that he worked on these lines more than any others he'd ever written. Don't want to get too technical, but as you probably know, Italian has many rhyme words, English far fewer. Eliot's highly effective solution, at least effective for his purposes here, I think, is to alternate his English lines ending with alternating stressed and uh, lines ending with stressed and unstressed syllables. That's his way of getting the feel of the Terzarima. The passage, <clears throat> the, these lines evoking the bombing of London during the Blitz in, in World War II, um, Eliot was an air raid warden for his area of Kensington, is the occasion for some of his most searingly personal lines, I think. Dantean familiar compound ghost whom he meets. The figures who, who make up this, who compose this ghost, as we learn from the passages, literary allusions are a roll call of past writers, including Henry James, Dante himself, Virgil, Yeats, Dunn, Shakespeare, Arno Daniel, Shelley, Johnson, Milton, Mallarmé, you name it. Um, and many more. This ghost, a sort of otherworldly doppelganger, is first made to tell the poet unsettling uh, home truths about his lifetime's apprenticeship to poetry, and then to teach him some searing personal lessons about the gifts reserved for age, as he says. You should know that the dark dove with the flickering tongue near the beginning is a German warplane, but it also recalls the Pentecostal dove and the Holy Spirit tongued with fire. In the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed, below the horizon of his homing. While the dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt where no other sound was, between three districts whence the smoke arose, I met one walking, loitering and hurried, as if blown towards me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn wind unresisting. And as I fixed upon the downturned face that pointed scrutiny with which we challenge the first met stranger in the waning dusk, I caught the sudden look of some dead master whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many, in the brown baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, 
both intimate and unidentifiable. So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cry, What, are you here? Although we were not. I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other, and he a face still forming. Yet the words sufficed to compel the recognition they preceded. And so, compliant to the common wind, too strange to each other for misunderstanding, in concord at this intersection time of meeting nowhere, no before and after, we trod the pavement in a dead patrol. I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder, therefore speak. I may not comprehend, may not remember. And he, I am not eager to rehearse my thought and theory which you have forgotten. These things have served their purpose, let them be. So with your own, and pray they be forgiven by others, as I pray you to forgive both bad and good. Last season's fruit is eaten, and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. For last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. But as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine, between two worlds become much like each other, so I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. Since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what causes, at what ceases to amuse. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then fool's approval stings and honour stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. The day was breaking. In the disfigured street, he left me with a kind of valediction 
and faded on the blowing of the horn. The tiger in the tiger pit is not more irritable than I. The whipping tail is not more still than when I smell the enemy rising in the essential blood or dangling from a friendly tree. When I lay bare the tooth of wit, the hissing over the arched tongue is more affectionate than hate, more bitter than the love of youth and inaccessible by the young. Reflected from my golden eye, the dullard knows that he is mad. Tell me if I am not glad. That was T.S. Eliot's lines from an old man, one of his least known poems, I think. When Stephen invited me to take part in this wonderful event, I said that I'd like to read poems which weren't very well known. I've spent 20 years reading academic criticism of Eliot, perhaps too much of it, uh, and I think perhaps some of the, the most well-known poems have been slightly dulled in my appreciation. There is one wonderful sequence of poems, though, the Landscapes poems, which have received very little critical commentary. And there's a tip for any of you who like to carve out an academic career. I think there's a, there's a case there for, a, for an article on them. They have, however, been admired by poets. Ted Hughes admires them very much. And by way of introduction, I'd like to read what Gareth says about these poems in the Blackwell Companion to T.S. Eliot. Hindsight reveals that the landscape sequence anticipates in miniature, but in important respects, four quartets. Already in landscapes is present the movement, back and forth, temporal, geographical, visionary, in memory and in actuality, between origins and destinations, beginnings and endings, at the heart of four quartets. In my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. New Hampshire, Virginia, and Cape Anne, the first two and the last of the landscapes, were composed in America during Eliot's visit there in 1933. The other two, Usk and Rannoch by Glencoe, on his return. Thus, like four quartets, the landscapes move between America and Britain, and their ordering must be deliberate, since they were not composed in the order in which they were published, with the American landscapes encompassing the two British ones. What Gareth doesn't mention is that when Eliot went to America in 1933, he was in effect walking out on his wife. And so those three American poems, I think, are charged by this strained emotional context. It seems that the New Hampshire poem and Cape Anne, which is on the Massachusetts coast, they seem to sort of evoke glimmers of childhood happiness in Eliot. And I wonder if the Virginia poem, um, in its obdurateness, reflects in some way the reactionary obdurateness of Eliot's lectures, the Paige Barber lectures delivered at the University of Virginia, easily the worst literary criticism he ever wrote, uh, and I should know because I'm annotating them. The two British poems, Ask, I've never been to, but I gather it's in the Brecon Valley, uh, and look out for the White Hart pub in the poem, uh, which is close to the medieval well. Rannoch by Glencoe, I do know, I was actually the best man at a wedding there. It's a place of great somber grandeur um, with the mountain hovering over you. It's also the site of a clan massacre during the Jacobite Rebellion. Landscape. Children's voices in the orchard, between the blossom 
and the fruit of time. Golden head, crimson head. Between the green tip and the root. Black wing, brown wing, hover over. Twenty years and the spring is over. Today grieves, tomorrow grieves. Cover me over, light in leaves. Golden head, black wing, cling, swing, spring, sing. Swing up into the apple tree. Virginia, red river, red river. Slow, slow, heat is silent. No will is still as a river, still. Will heat move only through the mockingbird, heard once. Still hills wait, gates wait. Purple trees, white trees, wait, wait. Delay, decay. Living, living, never moving. Ever moving iron thoughts came with me and go with me. Red river, river, river. Ask. Do not suddenly break the branch or hope to find the white heart behind the white well. Glance aside, not for lamps. Do not spell old enchantment. Let them sleep. Gently dip, but not too deep. Lift your eyes where the roads dip and where the roads rise. Seek only there where the grey light meets the green air. The hermit's chapel the Pilgrim's Prayer. Rannoch by Glencoe. Here the crow starves. Here the patient stag breathes for the rifle. Between the soft moor and the soft sky, scarcely room to leap or soar. Substance crumbles in the thin air Moon cold or moon hot. The road winds in listlessness of ancient war. Languor of broken steel. Clamour of confused wrong. Apt in silence. Memory is strong beyond the bone. Pride snapped. Shadow of pride is long. In the long path, no concurrence of bone. Cape Anne. Oh, quick, quick, quick. Quick hear the song sparrow, swamp sparrow, fox sparrow, vesper sparrow, at dawn and dusk. Follow the dance of the goldfinch at noon. Leave to chance the black Burnian warbler, the shy one. Hail with shrill whistle the note of the quail, the bob white dodging by bay bush. Follow the feet of the walker, the water thrush, 
follow the flight of the dancing arrow, the purple martin. Greet in silence the bull bat. All are delectable. Sweet, sweet, sweet. But resign this land at the end. Resign it to its true owner, the tough one, the seagull. The palaver is finished. There was a sort of subplot to my first half. My, my, I, uh, as you'll see, I've had uh, difficulty in finding poets post Eliot much influenced by him, or at least acknowledging being influenced by him. Uh, it's curious that at least uh, English. Um, poets writing in English. But I wanted to try and follow the format somewhat and, and uh, have some uh, uh, Eliot-inspired influence poems to read to you. So I thought I'd do a parody, well-known parody, of Burnt Norton. The poem is called Chard Wicklow. And it's by Henry Reid. Um, Eliot himself thought um, well of it, in fact. The parody conjures up a lot of Eliotisms from the quartets generally, not just Burnt Norton, and also from other poems by Eliot, um, most obviously probably uh, Garontian. There's, in fact, you go to YouTube one day and, and listen to Dylan Thomas's rendering of this poem, which is much better than mine will be. It's terrific. It's a little unfair since um, Dylan Thomas sponged off Eliot. Eliot forked out quite a lot of cash to keep him from, well, probably to keep him in drinking from, but that's another story. Chard Whitlow, Mr. T.S. Eliot's Sunday evening broadcast postscript. As we get older, we do not get any younger. Seasons return, and today I am 55, and this time last year I was 54, and this time next year I shall be 62. <laughs> I cannot say I should care, to speak for myself, to see my time over again, if you can call it time fidgeting uneasily under a draughty stare or counting sleepless nights in the crowded tube. There are certain precautions, though none of them very reliable, against the blast from bombs or the flying splinter, but not against the blast from heaven, vento dei venti, the wind within a wind, unable to speak for wind and the frigid burnings of purgatory will not be touched by any emollient. I think you will find this put far better than I could ever hope to express it in the words of karma. It is, we believe, idle to hope that the simple stirrup pump will extinguish hell. O oh, listeners, and you especially who have turned off the wireless, 
and sit in Stoke or Basingstoke, listening appreciatively to the silence, which is also the silence of hell. Pray, <laughs> pray not for yourselves, but for your souls. And pray for me also under the drafty stare. As we grow older, we do not grow any younger. And pray for karma under the holy mountain. As I was saying, I find it difficult to find more contemporary poets, post Hart Crane, for instance, who, who acknowledge directly Eliot's influence. But one such is my longtime guru, poet and critic Donald Davy, who um, said that Eliot was a powerful influence. He says, conscious or otherwise, he suddenly woke up sort of comparatively late in life to think, good heavens, that man has influenced me more than I knew. And it's very difficult, I think, to point to particular poems that influence him, but Eliot's whole way of thinking, um, he resists Eliot often in his criticism, but he's very wise about it and intelligent about it, I think. But you can see that it sometimes does um, have inflections but he, he says that for as long as he, 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 he Eliot was, or as, as, as long, as far back as he began writing, he, he claims Eliot was obviously a, uh, an influence. And, um, one of the poems he does acknowledge as his favourite is Marina. So I want to read that. The title Marina, uh, recalls the daughter of Pericles in Shakespeare's, well, mostly Shakespeare's play uh, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, and in particular the reunion scene of father and daughter um, towards the end of the play, uh, daughter born at sea, lost to him as a baby, but um, restored to him as a grown woman, um, seemingly miraculously. But it's a poem about restoration, reunion, marina. What seas, what shores, what grey rocks, and what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, O oh my daughter? Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death, those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death, those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death, those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death, are become unsubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the, and the wood song fog by this place, dissolve by this grace dissolved in place what is this face less clear and clearer the pulse in the arm less strong and stronger given or lent more distant than stars and nearer than the eye whispers and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the waters meet. 
Bowsprit cracked with ice and paint cracked with heat. I made this, I have forgotten, and remember. The rigging weak and the canvas rotten between one June and another September. Made this unknowing, half-conscious, unknown, my own. The garboard straight leaks, the seams need corking. This form, this face, this life. Living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, my speech, for that unspoken. The awakened, lips parted, the hope, the new ships. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers and wood thrush calling through the fog, my daughter. And a poem, short poem by Donald Davy to his wife, though she's not named. It's um, probably one of Davy's best known poems. He was often asked to read it. He, he said to me he got rather fed up with having to read it, but I don't think he'll, his ghost will mind me reading it. It's called Time Passing Beloved, and it seems to me to have a tone and diction reminiscent, consciously or otherwise, of Marina. Time Passing Beloved. Time passing, and the memories of love, coming back to me, Carissima, no more mockingly than ever before. Time passing, unslackening, unhastening steadily and no more bitterly beloved the memories of love coming into the shore how will it end time passing and our passages of love as ever beloved blind as ever before time binding unbinding about us and yet to remember never less chastening nor the flame of love less like an amber. What will become of us? Time passing beloved, and we in a sealed assurance unassailed by memory. How can it end this siege of a shore that no mis misgivings have steeled, no doubts defend? And finally, to finish with a Another poem, or part of a poem by Eliot. I realise I've only read a, one complete poem by Eliot this evening. That is um, Marina, but never mind, we did get into long poems written in parts. I wanted to read, finish off with the opening of Ash Wednesday. Again, I think it has a Donald Davy resonance. It's very abstract language. And Davy somewhere says, he gets rather angry with how modern poetry in English, at least in the English-speaking world, has become obsessed by the image ever since imagism. What is wrong with naming one of his, his, his early books Articulate Energy? It's articulously, it's how syntax works and so on. That is, is one of the things that, that, that we've forgotten about. And it seems to me, re even as I was reading Time Passing Beloved there, it's actually quite an abstract poem. It relies very much on its articulate energy for the meanings 
um, that it conveys rather than what you picture in your mind's eye. And um, Eliot has some wonderful images in his poetry, obviously, but Ash Wednesday, one of the turning points in poetry when he's, he's just become a uh, just become converted and is is having to it's a poem of renunciation having to renounce the world and wait for religious calling and so on is again at least it begins as a very abstract poem the language is extraordinary i think in the way it listens to itself and tries as it says in the part i'm going to read which is the first part Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And you can feel the language trying to construct something out of his emotions, and it repeats and it goes round and, and turns about and about. Um, because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because I do not turn going to start again. Ruined it. I, I was just thinking as I was starting reading it, there are some images, but because they're surrounded by all this abstraction, when the images come, they, they sort of, they, they become luminous and, 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 and you pay more attention to them. Sorry, lecture. Stop. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope. I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always and only place, and what is actual, is actual only for one time, and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face, and renounce the voice, because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice and pray to God to have mercy upon us and I pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss too much explain because I do not hope to turn again let these words answer for what is done not to be done again may the judgment not be too heavy upon us because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to sit still. 
Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And on that um, religious note, I shall end. Thank you. Well, I'm going to move to a different uh, poet now, but one who was heavily influenced by Eliot. Um, again, when Stephen and I had a discussion about what to read, I was reluctant to devote the whole time to Eliot because I find him quite a sort of sobering and, gl <laughs> and gloomy person. And I wanted to read someone who was deeply saturated in his work, but gives a more sort of optimistic thrust into the 20th century. Uh, and that poet is Hart Crane, a poet I admire very much. Crane takes on board the innovations in modernist poetics that Eliot articulates in his first two collections, but he moves forward, uh, and I think in a way that's a reflection of the dynamism of roaring jazz, jazz age New York, which you can understand was a very different feeling than post-war London, with the ghosts of non-returning soldiers haunting Eliot's The Wasteland. I want to read from a wonderful poem called For the Marriage of Faustus in Heaven. But just before I do that, I wanted to read Crane's own general aims and theories. He's an extremely difficult poet. Um, he works by what he called the logic of metaphor, um, which is, means it's extremely difficult to paraphrase his poems into any propositional content. But I think that hopefully the, the energy of the rhythms and the powerful emotions um, will come across. Crane says, when I started writing Faustus and Helen, it was my intention to embody in modern terms, words, symbols, metaphors, a contemporary approximation to an ancient human culture or mythology that seems to have been obscured rather than illuminated with the frequency of poetic allusions made to it during the last century. The name of Helen, for instance, had been an all too easily employed crutch for evocation whenever a poet felt a stitch in his side. The real evocation of this to me, very real and absolute conception of beauty, seemed to consist in a reconstruction in these modern terms of the basic emotional attitude towards beauty that the Greeks had. And in so doing, I found that I was really building a bridge between so-called classic experience and many divergent realities of our seething, confused cosmos of today, which has no formulated mythology yet for classic poetic reference or for religious exploitation. So I found Helen sitting in a streetcar. The mind has shown itself at times too much to baked and labeled dough, divided by accepted multitudes. Across the stacked partitions of the day, across the memoranda, baseball scores, the stenographic smiles and stock quotations, smutty wings, flash out equivocations. The mind is brushed by sparrow wings, numbers robust by asphalt, crowd the margins of the day, accent the curves, convoying diverse dawns on every corner to druggist, barber, and tobacconist. Until the graduate opacities of evening take them away, a suddenly, to somewhere virginal perhaps, less fragmentary, Cool. There is the world dimensional for those untwisted by the love of things irreconcilable. 
And yet suppose some evening I forgot the fare and transfer, yet got by that way without recall, lost yet poised in traffic. Then I might find your eyes across an aisle still flickering with those prefigurations, prodigal yet uncontested now, half riant before the jerky window frame. There is some way, I think, to touch those hands of yours that count the nights, stippled with pink and green advertisements. And now before its arteries turn dark, I would have you meet this bath of blood, imminent in his desire. None better knows the white wafer cheek of love, or offers words, lightly as moonlight on the eaves meets snow. Reflective conversion of all things at your deep blush, when ecstasies thread the limbs and belly, when rainbows spread impinging on the throat and thigh. Inevitable, the body of the world weeps in invented dust for the hiatus that winks above it, blew it in your breast. The earth may glide diaphanous to death, but if I lift my arms, it is to bend to you who turned away once, Helen, knowing the press of troubled hands, too alternate with steel and soil to hold you endlessly. I meet you, therefore, in that eventual flame you found in final chains, no captive then. Beyond their million brittle bloodshot eyes, white through white cities passed on to assume that world which comes to each of us alone. Except a lone eye riveted to your plane, bent axle of devotion along companion ways that beat, continuous, to hourless days, one inconspicuous, glowing orb of praise. So to read two sections from a couple more poems by Crane before I hand you back to Gareth. Carl Crane had a sort of facial attraction to the Caribbean. I think he's the finest, in my opinion, he's the finest poet of the sea that I know. He captures something of the sort of sparkling, glittering, beauty of those waters. And it was also into the Caribbean that he jumped from a steamer at the age of 33. And I think there's something about these almost manic, wonderful soaring emotions in trains that bring their dark other side. This is a particular favourite of mine and it has my favourite last line of any poem that I know. So look out for that at the end and I hope you're not disappointed. It's Voyages. It's Voyages number two. And yet this great wink of eternity, of rimless floods, unfettered leewardings, samite sheeted and processioned where her undernold vast belly moonward bends, lapping the rapt inflections of our love. Take this sea, whose diapason melds on scrolls of silver snowy sentences, the sceptered terror of whose sessions rends as her demeanour's motion well or ill. All but the pieties of lovers' hands, 
and onward as bells off San Salvador salute the crocus lustres of the stars in these poinsettia meadows of her time. Adagios of islands, O oh my prodigal, complete the dark confessions her veins spell. Mark how her turning soul shoulders wind the hours and hasten while her penniless rich palms pass superscription of bent foam and wave. Hasten while they are true. Sleep, death, desire. Close round one instant in one floating flower. Bind us in time, O seasons clear and all. O minstrel galleons of carib fire, bequeath us to no earthly shore until is answered in the vortex of our grave the seal's wide spindrift gaze toward paradise. I feel the, <laughs> I feel the uplift and I'm going to close with a wonderfully uplifting poem. Um, it's an ode to Brooklyn Bridge and it seems to me that it's a poem deeply intimate with Eliot's urban poetry but soaring beyond it in a sort of Shelleyan invocation to beauty. It's a great hymn to Roebling's Great Web of Steel. To Brooklyn Bridge. How many dawns chill from his rippling rest. The seagull's wings shall dip and pivot him, shedding white rings of tumult, building high, over the chained bay waters, liberty. Then, within violet curve, forsake our eyes as apparitional as sails that cross some page of figures to be filed away till elevators drop us from our day. I think of cinemas, panoramic lights with multitudes bent towards some flashing scene, never disclosed, but hastened to again foretold to other eyes on the same screen. And thee, across the harbour, silver paced, as though the sun took step of thee, yet left some motion ever unspent in thy stride, implicitly thy freedom staying thee. Out of some subway scuttle fell or lost, a bedlamite speeds to thy parapet, tilting there momently, shrill shirt ballooning, a jest forth from the speechless caravan. Down wall, from girder into street, noon leaks, a rip-tooth of the sky's acetylene. All afternoon the cloud-flown derricks turn, thy cables breathe the North Atlantic still, and obscure as that heaven of the Jews, thy guerdon, accolade thou dost bestow of anonymity time cannot raise. Vibrant reprieve and pardon thou dost show. O harp and altar of the fury fused, how could mere toil align thy choiring strings? Terrific threshold of the prophet's pledge, prayer of pariah and the lover's cry. Again the traffic lights that skim thy swift, unfractioned idiom 
immaculate sigh of stars beating thy path, condense eternity. And we have seen night lifted in thine arms. Under thy shadow by the piers I waited. Only in darkness is thy shadow clear. The city's fiery parcels all undone. Already snow submerges an iron year. O sleepless as the river under thee, vaulting the sea, the prairie's dreaming sod. Unto as lowliest, lowliest sometimes sweep, descend, and of the curve ship lend a myth to God. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For more podcasts, or to give your feedback on the podcast you have just listened to, visit readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com forward slash podcasts.